This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A Colorado company is making a big bet on international car racing. Englewood-based Liberty Media will buy Formula One for $4.4 billion. Liberty Media already has interests in communications and entertainment, including Sirius XM and Charter Cable. In a press release, it says it looks it looks forward to contributing to the growth of what it called a hugely popular global sport. Formula One is gaining audience here in the U.S. Sam Posey is a former racer and now contributor to NBC, and he joins us from his home in Sharon, Connecticut. And Sam, welcome to the program. Oh, welcome. Uh, it's a delight to be on the program and, and to hear, hear all this stuff about the sale of Formula One. Uh, it's uh, the 4.2 million, a billion, sounds like about right. Huh. But it's funny to think of a, a, a sport um, like Formula One, which has tracks all over the world, being an entity that you could buy or sell. You, you do indeed in the United States hear a bit more about NASCAR, but Formula One has a huge global following. What, what do you love about Formula One as a former racer? Well, I've raced in Formula One, and the, um, it's, it's the top level, so the top rung of the ladder. Um, and the best drivers in the world are out there on the track, and, and you can see it. As a, I mean, they, the speeds they go and um, the chances they take... And it's a difficulty such as they, you might have driving a car at 180 miles an hour in the pouring rain. These guys cope with all this stuff, and it's remarkable. 180 miles an hour. And I'll note that some of your most colorful commentary for NBC has been about the venues where the races take place. I think of Monaco, for instance, in which cars are, are at those speeds in, in the streets. Uh, paint a picture of some of the race courses for us. Well, I, I'll tell you, I'm writing a piece right now um, about Singapore, which is another street, street race. It's held entirely at night, um, and uh, it's, it's just awesome to watch uh, these things happen. Now, when you have a street race, you obviously have guardrails, um, everywhere um and uh, the track goes right to the guardrail so you can drift out within an inch uh, or maybe sometimes even graze the guardrail now, that's how hard these guys push the cars there's a lot of shifting involved braking has to be extremely precise um and in a special case of singapore it's a little difficult because uh they they have artificial lighting um over three, uh, three million light bulbs, um, and um, they, they, it, it, it kills the depth perception. Oh. What are the cars like themselves? Describe those for us. They're really weird. Weird. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're, they're the outgrowth of a set of rules which is uh, just uh, almost beyond belief. It's so, so technical. And this is one of the drawbacks of Formula One is that much of what is um, exciting and wonderful about it is hidden. It's in the electronics, uh, uh, and you don't see it. The only thing you see, and it's, it's a, it's a, it stands for what the whole world of Formula One is like, is the pit stop. Now, the pit stop in which all four wheels are t- t- 
the change takes 2.3 seconds. <laughs> I mean, the phenomenal, it's just uh, unbelievable until you see one happen. And, and then that, that kind of, that's the level of intensity um, uh, Formula One in all areas, engine, um, transmission, aerodynamics. Um, the aerodynamics are, uh, they just pour millions into them because the slightest improvement in aerodynamics is going to be vital. But those pit stop uh, changes that are really just a few seconds are phenomenal to watch. Formula One has been around since 1950. There are 19 races each year called Grand Prix. And the only U.S. race is near Austin, Texas. So for the uninitiated, how does the race work? You've certainly explained some of its challenges, but uh, uh, say a little bit more about the kind of constraints of competition. Well, uh, the um, first of all, just to address the track issue, um, the United States has not done well over the years of uh, <laughs> staging races at sometimes at very odd places like Caesar's Palace parking lot was a site one day of the, uh, the Grand Prix but not a very glorious time uh, Watkins Glen in upstate New York was a, a, a terrific venue but uh, the whole thing got too expensive for them and Long Beach was good but they could make more money with IndyCar racing and so the U.S. Grand Prix has not been held for several years uh, until last year when they you know, did it in Austin. Austin is a superb facility, um, but the, a, lot, a lot of money was borrowed to make it happen. And um, there's uh, dreadful rumors that uh, that money is going to dry up. Oh. And how, but, do, but, how, yeah, how does a race work? How long does a race last, for instance? It lasts a little under two hours. Um, it, 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 you, you, come in, uh, you, you come up to the track on Friday uh, with all the equipment and uh, gear that you need uh, to run a team. And it's, it's a lot of stuff. I mean, they pack it all in these crates that are specially designed to go on the uh, fuselage of, of a, a plane that it is. It does this only. Um, and in fact, there are several planes, big 747s filled with this gear. I mean, the expense wow. of this stuff is just unbelievable. So you get everybody there, and um, and then practice begins. And that's about half an hour to an hour, depending. Um, and then the next day, they have more practice and qualifying. And the fastest cars go on the front of the grid for Sunday's race. So qualifying is very important. It's prestigious, um, and it gets a lot of press because it's a Saturday, um, and the, the the race is Sunday. And when the race is over, everybody starts packing up and getting out of there. It's, the, the races are about, um, it depends on the length of the track, how many laps they are, but the they generally uh, work out to 200 miles. Mm. Quite a distance. And I'll say that the cars can go as fast as 240 miles an hour. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we are speaking with Sam Posey, who's a former Formula One racer, now contributor to NBC. And we're speaking to him as Englewood-based Liberty Media... 
here in Colorado buys Formula One for more than $4 billion. And um, this purchase isn't expected to be complete until next year. I'm curious, in, in general, Sam, how Formula One has, has made its money. That's a good question. <laughs> um, the, the man who could answer that would be Bernie Ecclestone. He's the, the, the brains behind the, this whole uh, uh, expansion of Formula One. Yeah, he's eighty. And, he's eighty-five. He's expected to remain as the top executive. I'll say. Yes, uh, I don't think I don't think you could have anybody else, uh, and he has never picked a a, a successor. So, <laughs> uh, and he's had heart, heart trouble. So. Formula One is headed for some rough times, I think. Uh, it's very stable now, um, but uh, with Bernie's death, uh, I'm not sure how what's going to happen because he he has been that man behind the expansion of the series into places like India, Korea, uh, Singapore, as I mentioned, um, and a lot of the Arab states. Uh, oh. And this is all his doing. And where where does the money come from? How how does it uh, make a profit? I don't know. He charges. <laughs> he, they, they charge. Uh, this stuff is kept we are far out of sight. I'll tell you. Um, they charge a, a, a sanction fee um, from the track, and the track has to pay that. And um, much of it goes straight into Bernie's pocket. Bernie is himself worth about four million billion. Goodness. I want to say that um, you raced for many years. You have a Parkinson's, which is part of the reason you stopped. Were you ever injured? I mean, it sounds, as you describe it, like a potentially very dangerous sport, Formula One. It is. It's very dangerous. Uh, I was incredibly lucky. I had two uh, crashes of the kind that kill you, and I got away with them. But uh, my friends, many of them were killed racing. When I raced in the 60s and 70s, about uh, 50% of the drivers were killed at this war. It seems incredible to me now that I would have taken risks like that. I I wouldn't think of it. But when you're young, (laughs) things are different. Yeah. And it's a different vantage point, right? Being behind the wheel as you were and now watching from the sidelines and maybe seeing how dangerous it is with different eyes. Sam, thanks very much for being with us and explaining Formula One. Well, I enjoyed it tremendously, Ryan. Sam Posey, former Formula One racer, joining us from his home in Connecticut. He's now an NBC contributor. We talked about the purchase of Formula One by Englewood-based Liberty Media, a deal worth $4.4 billion. Coming up, what it was like to work with Gene Wilder on the set of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. A Denver woman played Violet Beauregard, and she'll take part in a remembrance this week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After Gene Wilder's death last month, sales and streaming of his song Pure Imagination have jumped more than a thousand percent, according to Billboard. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. When Denise Nickerson heard that uh, song for the first time, she was charmed. She played the gum-chewing Violet Beauregard in 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. 
The former actress lives in Denver. Tomorrow night, she'll honor Wilder along with a few of her Wonka castmates at the Alamo Draft House in Littleton, which is screening the film. And Denise, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I understand that when you heard Wilder sing Pure Imagination on set, he stole your heart. Take take me to that moment. Um, none of us were allowed to see the chocolate room until Gene opened the door. And if you recall, we were at the top of like three sets of stairs. And that room was self-contained in one soundstage. The river, the Wonkatania, the water, the chocolate waterfall, mm. um, the Oompa Loompas, all of the trees with the candies. It was all one building. It was on screen when you see it on the big screen. It'll never look as good as it did to me that day. Mm. I was just astonished at what they had created. I mean, this is 1970 when we filmed this, so we didn't have any of the CGI technology, none of that. Um, but what they created was unbelievable. It just, it was unbelievable. And they Wonderful. wanted to, I guess, capture your true surprise as they opened they the door. They did. And there was I be- no, no acting in me. All of us were amazed. It was the most beautiful thing in the world. I mean, really, it was like Disneyland. And then when we're running through and Gene is kicking the, the ball and singing that gorgeous song, um, Julie, who played Veruca, Julie Don Cole, she'll be at the Alamo tomorrow night also with me, um, including Paris Femin, who played uh, Mike TV. Um, Gene was asked once by an interview how do you get along with the younger set? And he said, you mean the, the kids, the five kids? And he, the interview said, yes. And Gene said, four of them are wonderful. One I'm going to shoot tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and that, of course, was, was my TV. He was 11 at the time, and all, the rest of us were 13. Well, at that age, there's a big difference. You don't want that little 11-year-old anywhere near you because you're trying to be 21 at 13, right? (laughs) And so we would just block him out, and he was just a whirlwind on that set. On my scene where I blow up into the blueberry, there's a big bell jar full of wasps. And I believe they were supposed to be bees making honey, but it was filled with wasps. Okay. And Paris, my TV, decided he wanted to pick that thing up. Oh and my. he lifted the bell jar, and the wasps went everywhere. You have never seen 200 people run so fast and <laughs> empty a building. It's the funniest thing in the world. Too bad we didn't get that on film. Yeah, funny. I'm not so sure about funny, but okay. Uh, it, what? It was, yeah. What do, you, what do you remember about the first time you met Gene Wilder? Because it, it was before that big chocolate fountain scene, right? It was. The first day that we, I met him was the, when we were at the factory and waiting for him to come out of the building. And we were sitting on the bleachers. Hmm. 
And um, I had never uh, heard of him before because he wasn't, you know, ridiculously famous at the time. Um, I had watched Quaxer Fortune as a Cousin in the Bronx, which was an earlier movie he had done. Other than that, I didn't know anything about him. And so he comes out in a gorgeous outfit and then does the, the somersault. And that's the first time I met him. And then we meet at the gate and we all shake hands with him. And then we walk to that next doorway to go into the factory. Um, so are you saying still, are you saying the first time you met him, all of that was being filmed uh, 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 again, yes. trying to get your your true initial reaction? Yes. Wow. Um, Mel Stewart, who was the director, who unfortunately passed a couple of years ago, um, had the idea that he wanted this to be timeless. He didn't want our clothes to be dated. That's why they're so yucky looking um, and uh, he didn't want any landmarks that would date the movie and so that's why it was done in Germany and you can't really tell where it was shot you know you you, you don't know hmm. um, but it was done in Germany south of Germany in Bavaria and what an experience um, I was there for six weeks Depending upon your demise was how long you have to stay. That's right, because, of course, along the way, uh, some not-so-good things happen to the children who won't won't inherit the chocolate family. Good kids and bad things happen to bad kids. I have one question about the chocolate river you mentioned. Did it taste like chocolate? Do you really want the truth? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, sometimes when we start telling people the truth, it kind of breaks their image, their memory. Uh-huh. Um, it was actually colored water, and it was stagnant for eight, ten weeks. Oh, oh. And, oh, my Lord. It smelled terrible. And so the chocolate room... Actually, the film was actually filmed pretty well chronologically. Mm -hmm. And thank God we didn't do that chocolate room at the end because it was wholly smelly in there. Um, And when Michael Bolner, who played Augustus Gloop, had to fall into the river, people asked him, was it really chocolate? And he says, no, it was cold and dirty water. Gross. Well, York did not. He did not speak any English. Only the lines that he says in the movie. Again, and going for the authentic, the I suppose. Um, as as we mentioned, Violet Beauregard, your character was known for her gum chewing habit. Here it is, golden ticket number three, and it's all mine. Tell us how it happened, Violet. Well, I'm a gum chewer normally, but when I heard about these ticket things of Wonka's, I laid off the gum and switched to candy bars instead. Now, of course, I'm right back on gum. I chew it all day except at mealtimes when I stick it behind my ear. Violet. Pull it, mother. <laughs> now, this piece of gum here is one that I've been chewing on for three months solid, and that's a world record. How much gum did you chew while filming? I have no clue. Hundreds of pieces of gum. 
The interesting thing is I had just finished TV, one of the first movie of the week TV show movies um, was Lee, Lee Grant and Gig Young. Oh, yeah, Lee Grant. Out oh. in, yeah, it was out in the desert in Lancaster in California. And um, in that particular film, which took six, seven weeks to film, this girl blew bubbles throughout the entire movie. So she chewed gum the whole time. So I had seven weeks of chewing there. And I flew to New York and I had 39 hours. I took the summer clothes out, put the winter clothes in, got on the plane for Germany, and then chewed bazooka for another seven weeks. <laughs> this was so when I got back to New York City where I lived, yeah. I had 13 cavities. Oh, <laughs> so it was, was prior to Trident. Yes, you know, this was not sugar free. Uh -huh. uh -huh. Yeah, and Trident doesn't make the bubbles that Bazooka does. Of course, there's the classic scene where your character, Violet Beauregard, disregards Gene Wilder's warnings, Willy Wonka's warnings, and eats a piece of untested candy. Violet, you're turning violet, Violet! about i told you i hadn't got it quite right yet you can say that again look what it's done to my kid it always goes wrong when we come to the dessert mm. always violet what are you doing now you're blowing up i feel funny i'm not surprised what's happening you're blowing up like a balloon like a blueberry how just briefly how did they turn you into a giant blueberry it was done in two phases First, they laid me down when I first arrived on a big white piece of paper with my arms up and my legs apart. And they drew, like, you draw around your hand, you know? Mm -hmm. So they drew my figure. Then they took a gigantic styrofoam ball and cut my figure into it. And so when I first start blowing up, it's a big rubber suit. Mm. Then... You can see it changes into a hard ball. That's that styrofoam ball. I was in that ball, unable to move anything except my hands and my head for nine and a half hours. Oh, Lord. Okay. Um, they have a 30-minute lunch period on movie sets, and everyone's headed to the commissary. And I can't. It took them an hour and a half to get me in the suit into the ball so they weren't going to take me out so the director says Han come on over here get a chair and roll her every five minutes <laughs> so I would hang with my head down and drink some of the milkshake and then he'd roll me and I'd hang with my head back and the guy didn't speak one word of English it was the most weirdest experience ever when they first put me in the ball I fell over because I was top heavy. So they took me out and they put a cinder block in between my feet. So all day long that pulled down, particularly on my right arm and shoulder. And when they got me out of the ball, I had pins and needles in that arm for oh, a week or so. Uncomfortable, it um, sounds like. Denise, very quickly, well, did you did you stay in touch with Gene Wilder at all? No, you know, all the other kids did see him mm -hmm. over the years at appearances. I unfortunately never had the the pleasure. He, However, he did sign for me 
somebody went to one of his appearances, a friend of mine, and said, could you sign a picture for Denise? So I do have one that says, for dear Denise, love Gene Wilder. So he was such a gentle, soft-spoken, almost shy man. The complete antithesis of what you see in in the Mel Brooks movies. No. Thank you for I, being I with us. I don't know if he enjoyed that personality more than Wonka, but he was he's greatly missed, and he created Willy Wonka. I don't think anybody else can play that part. Well, I won't ask you about the remake then. Denise Nickerson lives in Denver and starred alongside Gene Wilder in the 1971 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. She played the gum-chewing Violet Beauregard who had the misfortune of turning into a blueberry. And she joins a few of her Wonka castmates tomorrow night at the Alamo Draft House in Littleton, which will screen the film. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it, want to change the world, there's nothing to it. When Denver artist Lisa Martin climbs a 14er, she doesn't snap a picture at the summit. She paints. For two years, Martin's mission has been to paint from atop all of Colorado's highest peaks. She fulfills that mission this week with a hike up Mount of the Holy Cross, northwest of Leadville. CPR's Stephanie Wolf caught up with Martin at the beginning of this journey. They hiked Mount Elbert together. Lisa Martin reaches the summit of Mount Elbert shortly after noon. It's a fall day on the top of Colorado's highest mountain, and the view of the landscape from the summit is saturated with fall colors, vibrant oranges and yellows. Now to figure out where to sit. She finds a spot facing Pike's Peak. The artist pulls out containers of brushes and acrylic paints from her bag. She lays down plastic to prevent paint from getting on the mountain. Then she sits on the ground one leg folded over the other, and begins to paint on a one-foot-by-two-foot wooden board. I started to paint on my lap because I don't have to carry up an easel. It's an extreme form of plein air painting. That's French for in the open air. Doing plein air painting is really interesting because you capture what it's actually like there in the surroundings. It's more about the experience and the process of painting. At the top of Mount Elbert, Martin starts to paint. Her paintbrushes create the outline of Pike's Peak, and other hikers stop to watch. Who are you? Are you someone special? The people watching her work are respectful, but she says they can be distracting. Kind of hard to focus on two things at once, and I'm in a hurry trying to get done, so... Martin needs to move faster than Mother Nature. Clouds shift without notice, altering the shadows cast below, and dangerous storms can move in quickly. I don't want to be up there longer than I have to, so... The artist spent an entire winter practicing speed painting. It usually takes her about 45 minutes to complete one of her works. I learn a lot from having to paint so quickly. It's kind of like a brain exercise for me. And the fastest she's ever had to paint? Ten minutes. When it snowed on Mount Yale. She's been at the top of Mount Elbert for 50 minutes now. It starts to flurry, and that keeps the paint from drying, forcing her to carry the finished artwork in her arms. Martin's clothes are splattered with paint from previous hikes. They look like something the famous abstract artist Jackson Pollock might have created. 
a contrast to her own figurative picture of the mountain landscape. Every single time I go, I've been getting more paint on myself. The incline is steep, so she paces herself. And as she descends, Martin talks about her life. She grew up in Fruta near Grand Junction. She said she has wanted to be an artist since the second grade. Her love for hiking came later in life. My very first fortune year was Beardstadt, and that was in 2011. And how was that experience? I wasn't um, acclimated to the altitude very well, so it wasn't my best for a junior, and I didn't particularly enjoy it, but enjoyed it enough to try it again. It was during that Beerstad hike that Martin got the inspiration for her project. She says she has since become addicted to painting at 14,000 feet. It's a huge challenge, mentally and physically and artistically. Since that hike up Mount Elbert, Martin has shared her artwork online and on social. She hopes to put together an exhibition. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Imagine working most of your life towards something that's over in relatively a blink of an eye. After four hours, cyclist Mara Abbott of Boulder was 300 meters away from winning a gold medal in the Rio Olympic Games. And then... Now they're in the finishing straight. Mara Abbott, she can't have anything left in those legs. Looks over her shoulder. She just wants to go a little bit further. Tries to sprint, tries to find that last little bit of energy. And all of a sudden, the Italian is right onto her wheel. But Mara Abbott opens it up again. But watch out for the Dutch woman coming across the line here. Anna van der Breggen, she sees the finishing podium. She's 100 meters to go. It's a big acceleration. Johansson's in second place, but it's going to go to Holland on the line. The big Dutch woman comes and throws it to the line, takes the victory for Holland. And Anna van der Breggen gets the the victory. Mara Abbott, what a dramatic finish for Mara Abbott and Team USA finishing in fourth position but the day goes to the Dutch woman Anna van der Bregen. Meanwhile, wrestler Adeline Gray of Denver hadn't lost a competition in two years and was an overwhelming favorite to win gold, perhaps becoming the first American woman to do so, but she lost in the quarterfinals. Gray and Abbott join us by phone to talk about how they're bouncing back after the games. And ladies, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Mara, you competed in the opening weekend, meaning it's been more than a month now since the race. How many times have you watched the footage since then? You know, I actually had very intentionally not watched the footage at all. Um, but I'm, I got invited to speak at the TEDx Boulder event this weekend, and naturally they wanted me to say something about the Olympics. And so I was using some of the footage as a visual. So I actually um, last week had to watch some of it for the first time. And what was your reaction to seeing it? Um. It, it wasn't my most cheerful day. It's just hard to watch. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's um, it's something that you work through, but it's um, tough to go back to that reality of it. What was happening in your mind and your body at, at that moment that uh, you lost the lead? You know, the funniest thing, and this is, I don't know, you know, I, I joke around with people about the sports gods a lot, but the sports <laughs> gods wanted to teach me a lesson because, you know, Cycling, and I think that you saw that a lot in our race, and that's why that particular race captivated a lot of people. But you just never know what's going to happen in cycling until the race is over. And so you're counting down and you're going from 10, 9, 8 kilometers. And even at one kilometer to go, you don't sit. If you've raced long enough to be at the Olympics, you know that you don't sit there at 1K to go and think, I've got this. Because I don't know, you know, you get a flat tire or, 
dog runs out in the street. I mean, anything can happen and does in cycling. And so it wasn't, I honestly, I got to 300 meters to go and I never looked behind me, you know, there would be any time splits, but I never looked behind me. And when I got to 300 meters to go, it was literally the first time that I actually thought in my head that I could win, that this could happen. And I took this little glance under my shoulder and that was the exact second that the three girls um, passed me. And so it was just, you know, I mean, that cycling and that teaches you the lesson of cycling that you can't, you can't feel like you lost something that was never yours. And I guess that's part of it too, is that for that one second, I thought it might happen, but I never won the Olympic gold medal. So it's hard for me to say that I lost it, you know? Hmm. So is the subtext of what you're saying that you think by looking for just a moment, for thinking that you had the race, that you angered the these these sports gods that you're well, talking about? Well, they just, they just thought it was funny, you know. <laughs> if you finally look back and you finally think it, they're like, oh, we're going to make it happen at that exact second. Because they'd passed me at 350 meters to go, I never would have had that second. So mm-hmm. they're just toying with me, man. The gods are... You, you're, you're superstitious, it sounds like. You know, I've I've been around the sport long enough that I think that you have to end up that way to make it all make sense. <laughs> uh, Adeline, your Olympic experience also came down to a single day to win the wrestling gold. You had to win five matches. Um, what are your recollections of the quarterfinals? I uh, know I was a tough girl, and I think I just kind of overlooked the experience. I had done really well against her the last uh, few matches that we had had against each other, and... Um, She's a tough opponent. You know, she has multiple medals at the World Championship. She's been to numerous Olympics. She's very experienced, and she's been called the dark horse. Uh, somebody who could beat just about anybody in the bracket for the whole year. And because I had had that success against her, I think I just kind of overlooked the fact that I had to win that match. And it's um, kind of a key thing in wrestling is just taking it one match at a time. And it's unfortunate because nine out of ten times I win that exact same match. And uh, particular girl has never beat me, but she always gives me a great match. And I uh, just didn't work out in my favor. And a match could have gone the exact same way. And I could, would have won that match any other day. So it's just unfortunate that had to pan out the way it did. So that just comes down to a strategy match. And uh, unfortunately, that's not my best game. A strategy match. Say more about that. So if you go out there and wrestle your pace of a match and and dictate what the aggression is and what the pace of the match is, score points, things like that, um, you can come out on top almost all the time. That's really where I am successful. And I um, got into the match and got a little scared. She has a very good throw that she pins people with all the time. And she almost threw me early in the match and just kind of put me on my heels a little bit, got me a little bit hesitant. So um, I made the decision to win the match by just a point or two. And um, I was in the lead with just a couple of seconds to go. And unfortunately, she got the better of me in the last couple of seconds. It strikes me, Adeline, that these these labels we apply to athletes, you know, the underdog, the dark horse, the one who's expected to win, these labels could potentially be very powerful um, if you, as the person who's expected to do very well, kind of assumes that an opponent is, in fact, a dark horse or an underdog, you know? Do you, do you um, think, yeah. Do you th- yeah, do you think that these labels take on too much power in some regards? Um, I, I haven't thought about it. Don't know. Okay. Well, there you go. Is it, um, 
painful to lose? Is it a lesson to lose? At what point, if it's a lesson, does the lesson set in? Um, Talk to me about your emotional states, uh, I suppose, right after and then in the ensuing weeks, Maura. Um, Well, I guess it's, it's hard to say. I mean, like I said, there's a part of you that sits there and says, you know, well, it wasn't mine. Like, this medal was never mine. And so it's really silly of me to feel this sense of loss over something that I never had. Um, And I don't know, it's complicated. I mean, and I think the thing is, I was talking to a friend this weekend that I don't even know if I've fully processed through all of it because I didn't do myself any real favors. um, I sort of decided a while back that um, I was going to end my um, elite international career with the Olympics, because, you know, how poetic, who wants to, who, how could you top um, finishing your race with the Olympics? Yeah. But at the same time, then it means that in terms of your emotional response, um, you're making yourself process two really large things at once. So this experience of this race of all of a sudden thinking that you could be something more that you've ever, more than you've ever been. And then all of a sudden you're not. And so going through that and processing that and processing the magnitude of this Olympic experience and at the same time, realizing that that power and that competence and that level of being the best in the world that you had at that second when you almost won is something that you're not going to have anymore. And so that's, and I, and, and I think it goes back and forth. So like, I don't even know which one I'm processing anymore because those are right. two really large things. Adeline, heading into the games, many thought you might be one of the breakout performers. That included Denver Post Olympic reporter John Meyer, who said he expected you to become a presence on NBC programs like The Today Show and The Tonight Show. And you told us in an interview before Rio that you welcomed that kind of exposure. I think that I'm doing something special out here on the wrestling mat for for not just female wrestlers and and for wrestling in general, but for women in, in sports. And I think it's really um, kind of those highlight names right now. You have, you know, the Williams sisters, you have some of those soccer stars. And I think the next name you're going to be hearing is mine, Adeline Gray. It's ironic that one of the athletes you mentioned, tennis star Serena Williams, also lost unexpectedly earlier in the games. Uh, but she's doing commercials. How, how often do you think about what might have been lost away from the mat, the, the, the sort of trimmings, Adeline? Yes, our world is based off of winning, and unfortunately, you don't get those uh, high highs if you don't have the the wins that come along with those, and sports are are very interesting because it's not just uh, an expectation that is placed on you to win, but there's also your whole life that rides on it, and that's something that we as Olympians that head to these major events understand very well. You're not going to stay in the limelight and presence if you're not winning, and and that's a a lesson that you learn in in the hardest way. Um, But at the same time, I think Mara's putting it very well. It's it's not handed to you. It's something you have to go out there and win, and you have to win the whole race or the whole match, and that's something that didn't happen on that day. But the supposed to win and the expectation of winning is, is something that I think gets overlooked very often. Every single athlete that goes out there and wins is something special, and and every win that you have at an Olympic Games or, or at any tournament, you're putting everything on the line to step it on that mat and, and just have yourself be out there um, competing for, for something that hopefully you enjoy and, and something that you know is going to bring you some satisfaction if you win. And uh, that world that kind of comes along with it is the, the TV commercials and the endorsements. But 
um, it was actually very, very nice to, to finish my tournament and realize that people just didn't care about my wins and losses, but also cared about the fact that I had been a spokesperson for women uh, for a long time and really helped kind of bring women's wrestling to the limelight when it came to people talking about the buzz. And, and Team USA did come back with an Olympic gold medal from Helen Rulis, and that's our first Olympic gold medal for Team USA in women's wrestling, and that's a huge bound for us. Mm. We now have that gold medal, and it's something that uh, means more than kind of those individual win and losses, but the fact that we are getting and creating more opportunities for women to compete in sports and compete at a high level and have people appreciate that. Gosh, I hear you say all of that, and I think, what a good sport you are. Let's let's talk about what's next for each of you. Mara, what, what's ahead in terms of of sport for you, of cycling for you? Um, well, sort of like I said, um, I'm pretty much done with it. Yeah, um, yeah. So in terms of what happens to me outside of cycling, um, I don't really know yet. I'm Like I said, I'm still sort of working through all of that and figuring out what my next steps are and whether that involves other kinds of sports or something else. Um, I honestly have no idea what happens to me next. <laughs> yeah, what, what are some of the thoughts you're playing with? Um... I mean, I don't know. I'm going to, um, I've considered, um, doing some writing. I've done some writing for our local paper as well as some, um, more personal stuff with related to sport, um, with relation to sports. So I might do some of that. Um, thought about finding other ways um, to continue to compete maybe in other endurance sports. Um, but honestly, I never went through that period after college. I went straight into cycling after college. Um, and so I never went through that period of, you know, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? Um, so, <laughs> so you're maybe going through that now. It. And maybe I just deferred it and I'll let myself go through that now. But I don't really, I look at it and, you know, it's been a month and um, I'm still dealing with um, a lot of the stuff that came along with that experience. And I want to be able to have, um, be able to fully experience the end of my career and be able to fully experience um, the Olympic experience um, and, sort of ride that wave as long as that wave goes and then um, not pressure myself to have to move on to the next thing tomorrow. And Adeline, yes or no, Tokyo in 2020? Uh, that's undecided at the moment. Undecided. Um, I, yeah, not sure. Okay, we'll check back in. We heard from Adeline Gray, wrestler from Denver, Mara Abbott, cyclist from Boulder, both competed on Team USA in the Rio Olympics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Student debt keeps rising along with the cost of college. One new report shows that since 2000, tuition in Colorado rose 116 percent. Other studies show young, low-income African-American women have the hardest time paying off student debt. CPR's Jenny Brundine introduces us to Rache Gary. Rache Gary was a typical teenager. Well, maybe not typical. I was kind of the band geek who was in, like, the anime club. Marching band, the color guard. The art club and the guitar club. She was the youngest in a big extended family and loved to sing. But while she was in high school, life at home became awkward and tense. Her dad disappeared for days at a time. Finally, her mom told her. Her dad was addicted to cocaine. Things just kind of hit the fan real quick. Her parents divorced and Rache and her mom left with nowhere to go. After a month in a motel, her mom heard about The Crossing. It's part of the Denver Rescue Mission Charity for the Homeless. It was a two-year transitional program. 
There, Rache found a quiet place to do her homework, and there were adults ready to help. An intern was one of the only people Rache would let into her world. She understands my anger. She understands my sadness, and she wanted to genuinely help. That intern and another mentor helped her get through high school, fill out college applications. Originally, Roche had thought of universities like the Berkeley College of Music, but at about $40,000 a year for tuition alone, it wasn't going to happen. Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction had good programs in science and vocal music, two of her passions. Come on, babe, why don't we paint the town? Singing has always given me joy. Like, whenever I sing, I feel my happiest. At first, college in Grand Junction for this Denver girl was like another planet. No busybodies, no sirens. It was quiet, but it was a nice quiet. It was a very peaceful quiet. Like, you think of college and you think of, not crickets. (laughs) The transition to college hasn't been easy. Roche's high school grades didn't qualify her for some scholarships, nor could she apply for a host of scholarships targeting students who are the first in their families to go to college. Her mom went to college. So Roche has a federal Pell Grant along with two student loans. Now starting her junior year, she hopes to graduate in three years with a degree in vocal performance and about $60,000 in debt. She's reminded of it each year she fills out the 10-page application for federal student aid. Every semester when I do, I'm like... (sighs) Roche works about 15 hours a week in a fast food restaurant to afford books. She says she's kind of terrified about the loan she'll need to repay. She tries to budget and puts aside a little bit of savings every month. Life is kind of chaotic. Well, not even kind of, just chaotic. At Colorado Mesa University, 70% of students are able to pay back at least some of their loans within three years of graduating. However, graduation rates aren't as positive. Mesa reports a 37% graduation rate. Nationwide, only 48% of full-time students graduate within six years. Those numbers don't keep Roche from her goal, a college degree in five years. This is a math question for you math lovers. She's also intent on giving back. So this summer, Roche came back to the crossing as an intern. Round the decimal. Today, Roche, with long skinny braids and a James Brown t-shirt, plays brain games with the kids a few days before she heads back to college. They adore her. She's very nice and fun, and I will really, really, really miss her. She tells the kids she used to live here. I used to live here. I used to be a kid, and I would come to Reading and Writing Club myself. They listen with rapt attention. She takes them to a bulletin board that has a picture of her when she lived here. They can't believe it. Just, she's one of the people here that, like, kind of work here. So you don't really expect people that work here to actually stay here before. And Roche wants to be the person to listen to them to nudge them forward, just like an intern did for her once. She says these kids can do anything. All of these kids are so creative and so smart. I wouldn't want them to not see their full potential. Roche wants to pursue a career in music, singing, and songwriting. Her student loans prompt her to work harder. I make sure that I know when my due dates are, and I try to definitely work twice as hard for school. Roche is back in class, back to her studies and her music, and back to going to sleep to the sound of crickets. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. The Colorado Symphony has just announced its next music director. Brett Mitchell is 37 years old and currently associate conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra. 
And here we're getting a taste of Mitchell conducting a recent performance. Here Mitchell conducts Cleveland's Youth Orchestra in Petrushka by Igor Stravinsky. Mitchell doesn't officially become music director of the Colorado Symphony until a year from now, but he'll conduct several concerts this year under the title Music Director Designate. He is slated to serve in the permanent role for four seasons. He replaces Andrew Litton, who still makes guest appearances. The orchestra's new season begins this weekend, with Litton conducting music by Brahms and Strauss. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.